recording. Okay, Tom, I haven't seen you in a while. Yeah, it's been been three three and a half weeks. Yeah, that's that's a long time in heavy hole. We keep we keep close, except for Justin. He's I don't know. I did hit him up today, and he's yeah. of course. You know, you physically hit him. Like, is that him. why he's avoiding? I us? hit him with a wiffle ball bat because I want to keep it light. You know, a little sand in there. Yeah, man. Rest in peace to MCA, man. Did yeah. him like this. Did him like that. It's the Heavy Hole Podcast. I'm Big Will, aka Uncle Buck. More importantly, you're Tom. I am Tom. I Tom, sound exactly the same. How are you doing, man? Are there, I, I actually, you know, I, I came in to this to the illustrious studio here in Huntington, New York. All cleaned up. Yeah, you don't look. Like a man who's been beaten about the face, neck, and chest area. You look, no. you look good. You look healthy. So I forgot for a minute. You you are recovering from your surgery. How's it going? Yeah, I'm still a week out of full recovery. Um, it's good now. It's good, but I gotta say, if you're thinking of tinkering in the land of tinkering tonsillectomies, hmm. don't bother. It's a terrible experience. Um. The guy, the, my doctor tried to talk me out the tonsillectomy too. I had four procedures done. Uh, Wait, so the doctor one tried go. to talk? Why? Why did? What was his main reasoning talking you out of it? So when he, this second doctor examined me, he looked at my tonsils and said, "Ah, they don't look that big." The first <laughs> guy who looked at him was like, "No, we should get rid of those walnuts. Let's uh, clock those out." So anyway, I had four procedures done in one go. One of the craziest things uh, I think I've ever done. Wild. Real wild Paris Hilton shit. Um, Tonsils gone. Adenoid removed. I didn't even know what an adenoid was, but apparently it's a tonsil-like gland behind your nose. Oh, boy. Um, I had my septum reconstructed. Uh Uh-huh. I had... had Stronger. Much stronger. Rebuilt him. Yeah. I was the Oscar Goldman. (laughs) Um, And then I had... The outside of my nostrils grafted. They're actually pushed to the side a bit. Okay. It's a plastic surgery, technically. Okay. So uh, okay. my nose is very even looking now. It's uh, for, for breathing purposes. I know. You look a little bit more like Brad Pitt than the last time I saw you. Insane. Yeah. I mean, I, that, that was my favorite of the procedures, I'll be honest. <laughs> okay. I'm wow. 100% an advocate of it. But yeah, I was laid up for about 10 days. No, I could talk on day 11 um, of my recovery. And so you didn't speak, or like, could you like do a, a whisper, a careless whisper? No, I snapped. I had a snapping system with my wife. Wow, that's that's old school. Yeah, I, I don't want to go there. <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> boy. All right, man. Wow. Shout shout to Snap. I got yeah. the power. Hit single. Uh, moving. If, also, wow. one thing I want to comment on. Yeah. Um, so the recovery was a nightmare. I was waking up like every two hours to take an oxycotton and i was just oh. having a panic attack which was crazy but the reason i sound exactly the same now and my voice will change over the next couple weeks is that i can't blow my nose for another three weeks due to the surgery mm. um, can you sniffle do you have to try not to sniffle i can breathe better than ever through my nose right now but i still have this like very nasally sounding thing going on because i can't do anything i can have all these bugs in there can you breathe underwater yeah, dude. I had, I had a tube put through my spine. <laughs> is, this like, is this like some sort of cyborg thing going on now? Yeah, it's nuts. I don't know. Water anyway, we, we listen to so many musics about surgeries. Might as well get into it a little bit. Oh, but boy. All, all kidding aside, I'm glad that you you saw it through and you're doing better, Tom. That was a little scary for me. I can only imagine for you. It was, uh, something else, man. You're, but uh, You're a brave man. 
With the help of drugs, I was able to do anything. <laughs> allegedly, allegedly. Slow down. Yeah. Look, before we get into psychedelia and other things, uh, I want to park the segue right here because you're talking about all this surge. You're grafting. You're you're you're, you're hacking. You you can't you can't blow your nose. My pl- plastic surgery has enabled me to be more selfish. So I've taken center stage, but now I will acknowledge that what's happening. Tom, I wish that many beautiful things blossom in your life from this moment and from this surgery. We might learn in a few minutes how something else beautiful bloomed and blossomed from a surgery once long ago. As we talk to drummer Eric Schnee of Organ Dealer and many other associated acts through the years, I go back a little ways with him. You're going to find out, man. Let's get him on the horn one time, Tom. I want you to rest your voice. I'll do the talking. All right. Sounds good. This is Big Will from Heavy Hole Podcast, and I'm here with tonight's special guest, drummer Eric Schnee of Organ Dealer from New Jersey. How are you, man? I'm doing good. How are you? Great, man. Thank you for your time. It's great to finally get you on the show. It's an honor. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah, and and, um, uh, we'll get right into it, man. Uh, For listeners, um, uh, Eric's uh, not only with Organ Dealer, but we've played a number of shows over the years, and we just figured out going back almost 20 years uh, since BioLich played with The Binding. Um, what, like one of your, I don't know, it's not your first band, but one of your, like your first major bands where you cut your teeth and toured in, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, man. It, it, so we, we go back, we go back a minute and Eric and I kind of got reacquainted when Organ Dealer, uh, started performing with some of my bands o- over the last several years, man. So it's, it's, it's really good to have you on the show, man. Welcome aboard. Thank you so much for having me. Of, of course, man. And with no further ado, Eric, we're going to go even further back than 20 years, uh, for the beginning um oh man i forgot to cut the uh i'm gonna cut the video too as we do listeners listeners can get a behind the scene tip now we cut the video uh just in case of any buffering or you know sometimes that video feed might interfere with the audio feed that that might be with the international ones but um uh so we'll just do that just in case man uh but before we get um uh too far ahead with that you got it do you want me to cut my video too, or? Yeah, if if you don't mind, man. That's yeah. like that. That's an old thing we go back. Like Tom, that's something that Tom just always asks everybody to do, just in case there's like a buffering thing. Um, going back, Eric. I know I should say actually, you were interviewed by the is it Wheel Must podcast? Yes. That's uh, the gentleman from Bird Flesh, right? From Sweden. That is Ellis. Yep. Yeah, I I listened to a podcast that you and Jeff, uh, big shout out to Jeff of Organ Dealer, did um, in 2020, and um, I think it was that, or it was also I should credit my credit my um, my resources. You also did an interview a, a while back in Sick Drummer, um, uh, the Sick Drummer website. Um, yeah, so, yeah, a long long time ago. So, well, uh, the reason I bring that up is because I know from th- those uh, sources that you said your mother got you into U2 and Eddie and the Cruisers and was playing a lot of music, um, listening to a lot of music, and your father was actually a talented piano player who was playing piano a lot while you were growing up. Oh, wow, you did your research. Yeah, Always absolutely. Do it. 
Uh, well, yeah, do you want to expand on that? Like, what, what did your father perform music, or was it just like a family thing, you know, when, when people were around? Did, did he ever gig? Yeah, it was, um, it was a family thing. I think when he was younger, he did have a couple gigs down the Jersey Shore playing at uh, spots, but I've never seen him perform in front of a crowd, but it was always like a, a thing he had at home. And so, yeah, I always grew up hearing piano music at home, and I guess that was my first exposure to music probably ever, you know. Okay, well, you say piano music. Did he have, like, a genre that he, you know, he stayed in, or? He played a lot of, like, old stuff, like rag ragtime music. He was into that a lot. Um, yeah, he kind of he kind of did a lot of that stuff. Interesting. Okay, so, uh, and then growing up, were you encouraged to take piano before anything else? No, I actually never played piano, and my parents never, like, forced music on me. I kind of just found it on my own um, just through being curious, you know, and I guess being around it. Okay, and I, I know you kind of experimented, with, well, maybe before that, the, you, I know your dad takes you to the Aerosmith concert, Joe Kramer's locked in, uh, I don't know if it's Love in the Elevator or Dude Looks Like a Lady, whatever song, but, but, but uh, uh, that was like a big experience, right? <laughs> yeah, man. Wow, you dug really deep. <laughs> <laughs> I read yeah. the interviews, man. Yeah, that was my first concert. I saw Aerosmith when I was 12. We went to Hershey Park in Pennsylvania to go see them. And, nice, uh, nice. You know, that was like that was like an arena kind of show. <clears throat> and um, I was just blown away by the whole production, you know, especially the drumming, Joey Kramer. Um, and I just was kind of fascinated by, by the whole thing. And that kind of sparked my interest in, in, you know, drumming and live music and things like that. Okay, and I got also from that, like you said, I did the research, man. It was that sick drummer interview. You went to see Slayer. That was like your first official, you know, not just rock, but heavy metal show. Yeah, the, the Aerosmith, I might have been younger than 12, actually. I can't really remember. But um, Slayer, I think, was when I was about 14, and that was my second concert. So I went from Aerosmith to Slayer. So I went right over the deep end and I saw them in uh, Asbury Park at Convention Hall. still a big venue that's there. Yeah. And um, Fear Factory opened up. So that was a pretty huh. cool show. And I was just blown away by that show. I remember I was like a little kid. My, my mom dropped us off. She was waiting outside in the station wagon and that kind of thing. And we were, we were like scared shitless to go to a Slayer concert. <clears throat> and I remember the crowd was kind of rowdy because they weren't serving beer at the show. Huh. But uh, yeah, we just sat there, and that 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 was like a, a game changer, you know, a life changer, and it was kind of down the rabbit hole of metal ever since then, you know. Wow! So Slayer and Fear Factory, what are we talking like '96? Yeah, I think it was somewhere around there. They were touring Diabolus, like their worst album, mm. <laughs> but you know, they went back and they played all the other the other tunes. And, Okay. It was, it was great. Sweet, sweet. All right, man. Still a sick show, man. So when do we get that first drum kit? Um, I think I was 12, because that's when I started playing drums. I was in about sixth grade. I got a, a white Tama Rockstar kit, because I was a big Lars fan, like every other metal drummer on earth. <laughs> <laughs> of course. So... All right, I, I don't want to skip too far ahead because I got a more more from the research. I got that not only did you play a lot of drums in high school, um, a variety of different band classes and stuff as high schools offer, um, but also seeing Dillinger Escape Plan 
who come from your area, but seeing them on the Warp Tour in South Jersey is really a big moment for you, right? Yeah, that was that was a huge one. That was a couple of years later. Um, I ended up taking drum lessons from from the original drummer Chris Penny, um, and I got his name through another teacher that was like uh, so he was kind of a, a friend of a friend, and uh, I was about sixteen, and I went down there and just introduced myself to them and they were like super cool guys Chris was super cool he was probably 22 at the time and I was maybe like 16 something like that um, and yeah they were they were doing like uh, one or two dates on the warp tour they were playing like a side stage and it was it was in their prime when they were touring calculating infinity so I, I saw wow. that and I just remember being blown away by that show and just how crazy they were alive and that was kind of the moment where I was like I want to pursue the most brutal stuff I can find, you know, and I'm still, still doing that. <laughs> <laughs> all these years later. So, yeah. all right. Interesting. So yeah. So like not just Dillinger escape plan, but Dillinger escape plan on calculating infinity. That's like a, um, like prime era right there. And you mentioned that you took lessons from the, uh, original drummer, Chris Penny. He actually, originally was a student of Stu Miller, who you were also a student of, um, you know, later on because you're younger than Chris Penny, but you and Chris Penny both were, were under the tutelage of Stu Miller at, at different points in your life, right? Yeah, yeah, that was the, the kind of the mutual friend I just mentioned. Um, he was my first ever drum teacher, so I took lessons from him in high school, and I made the connection because I just I just asked him one day, have you ever taught anyone in any bands, you know, anyone notable? And he said, oh, yeah, I taught this local guy, uh, Chris Penny. And uh, I was like, oh, like, I was like, what band is he in? And he said, oh, Dillinger Escape Plan. And uh, I knew I knew the name because they were they were from around here. <clears throat> and uh, I was like, I was like, whoa, that's really cool. So I kind of I kind of reached out, went to that show and met Chris just through the mutual the mutual thread of uh us having the same teacher, but we were, we were taught at different times. Um, and I'm trying to remember when I first heard them, I remember the first time I heard them, I thought it was complete noise and my, my brain couldn't handle it. But then huh. like the second time I listened to them, I thought they were great. And then I, I got really into them, you know, at the time. All right. Yeah. It, it's, I imagine for drummers and guitarists, that was like a, a kind of a game changer type of band, man. I mean, I, it's still, a lot of that stuff is still over my head, to be perfectly honest, with all, with all due respect to the band. Yeah, yeah. I, I connected with it because they were from my area, you know? So, like, they kind of showed me, like, what you could do with, with a band that was really out there and, like, doing their own thing and just just doing things by their own means, you know? And uh, at, the, at the time, I wasn't really uh, in, in the world of death metal and grindcore, so, like, I thought that was... That was like the most extreme stuff I heard, and like you know, uh, kind of like angsty teenager. I, I got really drawn to that, and I, I really wanted to like pursue that, and that's like really made me want to practice and and all that stuff, you know. So around that time, do you start go? Do you start exploring like other extreme bands and going to maybe more underground shows? Yeah, um, at the at the time in New Jersey, like the scene was was a lot different. Like there was a big there was a big pop punk scene and I was, I was never into that, but that was like a big part of the local scene. There was a lot of shows. There was like Legion hall shows, church shows, all that stuff. And then on the other side of the coin, on the heavier side, there was, 
tough guy hardcore, you know, that was kind of like when metalcore, that kind of thing was starting up. And that was just like what I was exposed to. There wasn't a big death metal scene that I, I knew of like at the time or like a grindcore scene was almost non-existent at the time. Um, so I was just kind of going, going around and getting into what was available to me at the time growing up in a small town. And um, what else was I going to say about that? I forgot what I was going to say. Um, oh, just the, the shows, the um, the Legion Hall type of shows and all that sort. Of thing. Oh yeah, yeah that that came that came a little bit later, but like really, it's not very cool. But my, my intro to that was kind of going to pop punk shows and seeing pop punk bands and stuff, and that kind of got me at least familiar with like a DIY scene. That kind of taught me that like oh, you don't have to be a big band to play live, and you can you can network with your friends and you could do shows together and. You know that's still the world that we operate in now. So that that was kind of like my uh, my schooling in that. You know. Yeah, um, there was a big scene. I don't know if you call it pop punk, uh, but there was like like these bands. It was a it was there was like two. I've talked about this before on the podcast. How there were kind of like two punk scenes here on Long Island, or two hardcore scenes on Long Island. There was like the the typical what people might think of hardcore scene. Um, uh, with your your more like you know hard street level type of bands, and then there was like what I call what I always called the food not bombs type of hardcore scene that was a little bit more rooted in punk and indie rock, oh, yeah. and um, I think there's probably a little bit of that wherever you go. There's kind of like those two sides to it, maybe maybe more sides nowadays, but a lot of those um bands uh here on the North Shore of Long Island, I'm talking about like the the bands from the Hobo House and Huntington Station. Um, Iron Sheik, uh, you know, going back like Contra and all John Berg's bands and Ladderman. Those with BioLich and Buckshot Face have played a lot of our first shows with those bands because that's the people that were around in the underground scene, you know? Yeah, that, that was really it. Like, <clears throat> I didn't grow up, you know, in a big city and New York was about an hour away. So I, I wasn't really exposed to the, the bigger world of underground music until later on. So it was just kind of what was available to me at the time. And, uh, like the pop punk kind of like warp tour scene that was a big thing that was trendy but there was also like a, a tough guy hardcore scene and uh like a metalcore scene and so that was kind of like i started with that because i, I just gravitated towards that because it was a little bit heavier a little bit more extreme and that was kind of like step one for me was to go check out that stuff like throughout new jersey you know pretty much like i i did a lot of shows down at the birch hill and old bridge and the eminem hall down in old bridge um, that was kind of like my scene back then and, and into high school when I was discovering heavier bands then I would see you know touring metal bands and hardcore bands eventually down there too so th- those were those were big spots for me yeah it's it's I, you know there's parts of Jersey and parts of Long Island I think are very similar in that respect to being close enough to the city where you know certain bands might come through but there's also a bit of a DIY scene that, that has to you know be self uh, self-sufficient in a way yeah, it was much more of a DIY scene than just like um, <clears throat> going into the city and and going to cl- like clubs like CBGBs and stuff. Like I did go to CBGBs later on, but kind of like later on, I, I wasn't really exposed to it at first, you know. And at the at the same time, with like the influences and stuff too, like that was the local stuff. But I was also really into like you know we talked about Slayer, like Slayer, Pantera, Metallica, Sepultura, all the classic stuff. But to me, those guys were like like gods, you know. I couldn't wrap my head around at all what they were doing, and at the thought of a band like that being from my area just like 
wasn't possible. You know, the best you could hope for is like seeing a hardcore band that would like throw some Slayer riffs in or something like that. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, exactly. But we're getting back to those um, comparisons to Long Island in a lot of ways too. But let's let's go into. I know, um, according to that interview, you were in, you were in a, a pop punk band called Karma when you were a lot younger. <laughs> Um, you don't have to get into that if you don't want to, but is it safe to say that The Binding is your first uh, like real band where you're writing original music and performing live? Yeah, uh, Karma, I was in that band when I was like 12, like it was before, it was the summer before high school, so I don't, I don't remember how old you are then, but <laughs> maybe 13 or something, yeah, 14 yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah. somewhere around there. Um, and they were just some, some guys in my neighborhood that were doing... Uh, like punk songs, like some some punk covers and stuff, and they, they had original stuff too. That that was a fun band, but I was only in that band for a couple months, and then uh, yeah, like fast forward until later on when I was in college. Really, the Binding was like my first real go at it, at being in like kind of an underground band. So, how does the Binding come together? Uh, are you looking for musicians? Is it more natural? Is it, is it, did you grow up with some of those guys? Um, uh, you know, what, what take me through that. I was I was trying to think about this today, and um, I think at the time I was looking for a band because I was like really kind of blown away by all this music I was discovering, and so I was looking around, I think online for the band, but the internet was like kind of in the you know not what it is today, but there was some message boards and stuff. I think there was this message board. I think it was called the NJScene.com, and I think I would post on there that I was looking for a band and I would, I would put my influences, um, and things like that. And, uh, I, I, I found a guitar player, um, man, I'm trying to even think, remember how I, I was, I was dating a girl at the time and I think she was a friend. He was a friend of, uh, the girl I was dating at the time. And, um, he wasn't even from New Jersey. He was from North Carolina, but he was going to school in New York. So we, we would meet up in Jersey and then the original other second guitar player was from South Jersey. And I think I met him through like the message boards and, and posting online. And then I also found our bass player, I think through the same way through posting online huh. and he knew the singer. So yeah, I didn't really grow up with any of them. Um, but that was like kind of our, our uh, formative years as a band. Um, but re- yeah, really through like networking and the internet and kind of like knowing someone who knew someone, you know, probably how a lot of bands start. Yeah, and and for the time, um, g- you know, given what you say about <clears throat> uh, Dillinger Escape Plan and um, some of your formative years uh, drumming, um, being maybe inspired a little bit by that, uh, and also when we look at the time period, I think the binding is very appropriate for the time period. It was kind of like mathy. Uh, metal, uh, metal chorus type stuff, but not not like that that melodramatic type of stuff that we that we think of when when we when we talk of metal core that like very redundant like breakdown focus stuff. It was like mathy, um, kind of inspired by Dillinger in a way. Is that fair? Yeah, definitely. We we weren't like a breakdown metal corey band. It was it was more of like the the math that what the, what's called like the math core stuff now, which I guess that term didn't even really exist back then. But yeah, it was. It, we, we were trying to do like shameless Dillinger ripoff and a couple other bands like like botch and coalesce and, and stuff like that and um, the guitar player I mentioned who's from North Carolina was all, also influenced by a lot of like mathy instrumental rock and stuff so like we were able to sound a little bit different maybe than some other stuff because he was taking kind of nods from like 
um, the math rock scene, like like Cal like Hella from California and this band called the Fucking Champs and stuff like that, and he would take it and make it kind of heavier. And so th that's kind of where the riffs came from. And then yeah, the rest of it was trying to make things as like abrasive and chaotic as possible, and not being able to play that well at the time and all that stuff, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, Eric, just give me one second here. I just want to double check something on, on my audio end here. Check, check, one, two. Check, check, one, two. Okay, sorry about that, man. I just, um, be, uh, my own, my, I'm on my home studio setup here, man, With and I'm I'm used to Tom producing me, so every once in a while I just I just uh, want to make sure everything's good, but we should be good now. No worries. So, yeah, so what you said, kind of like a very, very, um, uh, very typical type of sound of the time that that was uh, a lot of people were exploring at the time was that like mathy um, metalcore kind of in influenced sound. You put out the Imagine It EP in two thousand five, and what what I wanted to ask it comes out on Imagine It Records, which is based out of Omaha, Nebraska. Yep. So could you? How does a label named after your album um, uh, pop up from Omaha? The album wasn't actually called Imagine It. That was just the name of the record label. Oh, okay. uh, the album. The album was self-titled. The EP. Okay, I must have misread something when I popped it up on Bandcamp or something. All right, my bad, my bad. No worries. Okay, so you guys record that, and now I know, but I know you eventually did at one point later on move out to Omaha, Nebraska, to be part of the band Pariah. Is that correct? Yeah. Yep. So was that the connection to Imagine It Records? Was was those guys from Pariah? Actually, it was the other way around. The connection started with the label um, because at the time, those were the MySpace <clears throat> days, and we were just networking online, and I think we were just posting around MySpace, and it might have been, I think it's pre-Facebook, uh, probably, or very, very early Facebook before it was a lot of people on it. <clears throat> um and I don't remember how, but this label from Nebraska got in touch with us and they were putting out some similar bands at the time. And I kind of liked the other stuff on the label. And um, the guy who runs the label, Herb, offered to put the album out. And we thought that was awesome. So we said, sure, why not? And uh, yeah, that's that's how the whole thing with Nebraska began was we got signed to a label from there. Okay. Um, and then you, you put out Imagine It. I know from, uh, like I said, from the research that you guys did go on a national tour and you kind of credit that with cutting your teeth, um, maybe playing out live a lot more and things like that. Could you take us through, uh, like what kind of live experiences and touring experiences you were doing with the binding? Yeah. Um, at first we, I think, I think we only played live for maybe, maybe two years. Um, at first we were playing, uh, local shows, East Coast shows, New Jersey, New York shows. That's that's when I met you with Biolich. Um, and then towards the end of the band, we did have a, a tour lined up. We did an East Coast, it was East Coast Midwest tour. And um, we toured with a band from Omaha because our record label set it up. And they were on, I think they were on a longer tour and they were, they were kind of a hardcore band called Analog and uh, did that tour, went Went pretty good. Um, became frame, friends with those guys. I guess I should say it didn't go very good because we broke up when we got back. <laughs> but um, after that, we uh, we called it quits. And 
the bass player from that band was in another band from Omaha called Pariah, which was like another technical metal hardcore band. And um, their drummer just left, and they were signed to a label that was a subsidiary of Metal Blade, which is a well-known label. And um, the bass player asked me if I wanted to come and come out to Nebraska and try out for them uh, after seeing me on that tour with his other band. And I was like 22 at the time. I didn't have a lot going on. I just finished school. So I was like, sure, why not? And um, my band broke up. So I learned the songs. I flew out there. I tried out. And I, I like passed the audition and I got into the band and then packed up my stuff and moved out there. And then I was, uh, before I knew it, I was out there playing in another band. So that all happened pretty quickly, just in like a couple months. That That's a lot. And, and you, you know, but in your 20s, sometimes people bounce around to different bands. But what was it like moving out to Omaha, Nebraska, coming, you know, you come from New Jersey, New York City isn't that far away. There's other parts of New Jersey where life, you know, you talk about Asbury Park and things like that. Is Omaha, Nebraska a little bit of a culture shock? <laughs> yeah, it was. It was different. And I, I know the first thing probably anyone is saying is like, why, why go out there? You know, when New York is right next to you and stuff. And like, you know, at the time, like you said, it was like bouncing around and I, I wasn't really thinking like that. I just got an offer to go somewhere and I was like, this is what I want to do. So I'm going to just do it. You know, that's kind of how I looked at it. <clears throat> and, um, when I went out there, it was, it was different, but it, it wasn't that bad. I mean, I moved to Omaha is the biggest city in the state and there's a music scene there. So I kind of, I actually moved from a small town to a bigger city, but you leave Omaha and Lincoln and there's really nothing else there. So it's kind of opposite New Jersey where it's very spread out. Um, culture wise, it was, it was a little bit different, but it wasn't too bad. The people there were super, super friendly and nice. So that, that was really cool. I thought maybe a little nicer than here <laughs> at the time. Um, but yeah, I, I fit in there pretty good. Um, you know, I was a little different because there's not that many people from the east coast there but overall it was a it was a really really good experience okay and, and i know in um uh so you you didn't actually um well you didn't actually get to record an album or anything uh with pariah but you did do some a fair amount of touring with them yeah when, when i was there i um it was mostly touring and some some local stuff because they they kind of put out their album that was on uh, like the sub label of Metal Blade Black Market that came out maybe a year or two before I went out there and um, they were touring full time on it for a year. And that's that's kind of what I wanted to do when I went out there was to just tour all the time. <clears throat> um, but the problem they had was when their drummer left, their singer left, too. And so the whole time I was there, they were trying to replace their singer also. And we. We had a guy doing vocals for a while, but it didn't really work out that well. But um, we still got to do a couple tours, and we played we played a couple really good shows. We opened up for Necrophagist when they were doing Epitaph, their, when there was their Epitaph lineup, which was amazing. And we finally got to play with Dillinger, which Chris, with Chris, which was really cool because he left the band like a week after I played with them. Huh. So got to, got to experience a little bit of... Uh, a higher level of shows and stuff playing with them, which was really cool also. Well, yeah, them being on Black Market, which, like you said, was like a Metal Blade, um, I guess, subsidiary or sub-label, whatever, whatever the word is. 
Uh, was it like more of a commercial music market than the binding had been playing in? Um, yes and no. Like they, they had more connections, I guess. They had like kind of those label connections and I can't remember if they had booking connections or not. Um, they'd been around in the Midwest for a long time. So they were like pretty into that scene and they would, they would do, you know, bigger club shows and stuff like, but it was more, uh, in, in town when they were at home, when we, when we would tour, it was still very much like underground DIY shows. Um, some of, some of the shows were pretty good though. They had some pretty, pretty good lineups and stuff, but it wasn't too different from the binding, but they had a little bit of a bigger reach than us, which was like one of the reasons I wanted to do it. Okay. And, and, but, but eventually, um, it doesn't work out and you, you part ways and you come back to New Jersey, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, and I, and I know that when you come back to New Jersey, you eventually reform the binding. Oh man, I forgot about that. <laughs> well, this, this is what I got from an old article. Yeah. Well, maybe you want to talk about that, that period. Yeah, we, oh man, I can barely remember that. We, we did, um, I'm, I can't even remember how this happened, but yeah, we did reform the band and it wasn't really a reform. As far as I can remember, we did one show in Boston and our original singer, Lily, wasn't in the band anymore. Um, the reason that that band left broke up was because everyone was moving away. Everyone wanted to kind of go and do different things and a couple of them moved to California. Lily was in California at the time. And we got um, this guy named Mike from Boston to come down and fill in on vocals for us because he was in a, a band that we were friends with that we, we played with um, a couple times. And uh, we just, yeah, we just did, I think, one show. And I think that was it. But I, I almost totally forgot about that. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, so you do that. But then it seems like fairly um, uh, soon after moving back, you also end up, uh, in correct me on the pronunciation. Is it, uh, Hayano Daisuke? Hayano Daisuke. Hayano Daisuke, which for the listeners, um, is a bit of a super group with, uh, John Chang, obviously of Gridlink and Discord and Axis on vocals, uh, Takafumi Matsubara of Gridlink on guitar and Teddy Patterson, the third of Human Remains and Gridlink and so on on bass. Yeah, he was in Burnt by the Sun also. Yeah, Burnt by the Sun. I mean, yeah, the the list goes on of the bands all these guys have been involved with. Um, but yeah, so you some pretty heavy company there. Um, could you take us through how you fall into that crowd? Yeah, yeah, it, it was it was weird because all this stuff at this time, like years ago, was a lot of coincidences, like kind of lining up. Um, so when I was leaving Nebraska and moving back home to New Jersey, I wasn't done playing in bands. I wanted to keep going and playing more bands. And that was kind of when I started to get into grindcore and more extreme stuff. And I was in Omaha and I was basically packing my bags. And I was looking for something new at home in New Jersey and um, just searching around MySpace. And I was a big Discordance Axis fan, I had their DVD when they toured in Japan, and they toured in Japan with a band called Mortalized. And um, I found on uh, MySpace a Mortalized band page, but on, on MySpace, you know, they used to have the location, and instead of Japan, 
the location was Booton, New Jersey, which is this small town that's 20 minutes from where I grew up. Huh. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I, I knew Discordance Access obviously was from New Jersey. And I, I kind of put two and two together. And I thought that John Chang was the only person that would know this Japanese band and have the location in New Jersey. I figured it, it had to be him or someone that knew him. So just on a, on a whim, I sent a message to this uh, MySpace fan page. And I just said, I'm a drummer. I'm coming home. I'm looking for a new band. You know, I'm a fan of Mortalized. Um, would you happen to know anyone? And I and I, I think I asked too if this was John Chang from this Gordon's Axis, and I got a response that said it wasn't John, but it was John's girlfriend. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. And um, she got me in touch with John, and John said that um, he actually had a project for a thrash band, and. They were signed to Hydrahead, which was a, a huge label that uh, Discordance Axis was signed to, and it was going to feature this guy Matsubara from Japan, who was the guitar player of Mortalized, and then later Teddy from Human Remains and Burnt by the Sun came in the fold, and he said, do I want to do it? And I immediately said yes, and, and that's how that band started. <laughs> wow, okay, so... <laughs> yep, ran totally, totally, totally random, and... Uh, I, I had to try out for that band too, and they sent me, um, Matsubara sent over a guitar, some songs, guitar tracks with like a drum machine from Japan. I, lear I learned it when I was in Nebraska, and when I came home uh, for Thanksgiving, I, um, I did a recording of it with a friend in Nebraska, sent it off to those guys, and then I met, I finally met Chang when I came home for the holidays that year, and he liked what he heard, and then I was in the band. And uh, at the same exact time that that was happening, they had another band that's a lot more well-known called Gridlink um, that was all the same guys. And then they had another drummer, Brian Fajardo, who's who's a super grindcore drummer now. Everyone knows him, you know? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so, uh, all right, so... so with that band, do you guys well before before I get into that band actually something that popped into my head while you were just talking about it um we've talked in the podcast before about how New Jersey has this kind of somewhat in my opinion underrated history of um uh, uh really experimental and progressive qualities in their death metal. We've talked about mortal decay and ripping corpse and a lot of different bands. Uh, but now with Grindcore, you're really making me realize that there's also kind of like the Dillinger Escape Plan, Gridlink, uh, Human Remains. Um, just from your perspective, is there any reasoning or any context why you think that's that's so much inter like really interesting, progressive, extreme music comes out of that area? That's a great question. <laughs> um I don't really know, but all, all the bands you mentioned are like literally the most famous extreme bands, I think, pretty much to ever come from the state. You know, another one would be Dead Guy that influenced Dillinger and Rorschach on the more like hardcore technical side, you yes, know, and 100%. Uh, yeah, I think you, you said Human Remains and Ripping Corpse, I think. Right. Yeah, they're, they're big ones. And Dim, Dim Mac, too, you know, Dim Mac. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't really know. I think. That's a good. That's a good question. I mean, we've certainly had bands that have pushed the limits, but I mean, living living here most of my life, you know, I mean, it's it's not like these bands are just jamming down the street. You know, these are bands from many, many, many years ago, and they were. I think they were all in kind of like a unique, special situation. Maybe, maybe they they just all 
found the right people and you know pushed things forward in the right way where they became notable bands probably probably very similar to long island you know yeah, it's a similar thing. I think it's something that happens maybe when there's a little bit of uh, less opportunities to to play live and to go out and see live music. Like in the suburbs here, there's a weird kind of isolation thing that happens when you lock in with a few other musicians. You know, I think I think that's a big thing, and I think that like you say, oh, New Jersey, it's got a huge population. It's next to New York, but like growing up, it was very isolating because like I didn't I didn't go to the city until I was much older, really, or just going in with my mom here and there, you know? So it, it was like, yeah, I think it could be an isolation of just small town and like maybe just a few people that are into this extreme music and, you know, you get lucky and you kind of find each other maybe. And that's, that's kind of it. You know, you're not, you're not spoiled by like a, a huge scene or something really. So maybe those bands just work really, worked really hard, I guess. I, I don't really know, you know? Yeah. It might be something just that you could say about a lot of those localized regional scenes. Um, but so, so working with that band now, John Chang and Teddy Patterson, obviously, um, guys that are familiar to New Jersey was Takafumi Matsubara still living in Japan and you guys were collaborating from afar for that band. Yeah. He has always been in Japan. So yeah, the band was always split between the East coast and Japan and he was the main guy, you know, he was the songwriter. So he would, he would send us the songs and Chang was really the only one who lived in my area. So me and him would get together. Like I would learn the songs on my own, basically with like a, a click track and a guitar. And then we would have the roughest practices ever. We would get get together at a studio and just blast the guitar through a PA and like hope we can hear it and try to play to it, which if you've ever done that, it's super, super hard. So it was just vocals and drums and that was it. And then like recorded guitar. And then the way that we would work is he would fly out like once a year and we would record in Jersey and then we would maybe play. We, we did one tour together and that that's pretty much how that band operated. So it was very, very, very part time, but like everyone in the band was amazing at what they did. Yeah. Wow, man. And um, with that band, did you in fact go to Japan and perform? I never did. That was, uh, that was the kind of the initial offer was to do the record on Hydrahead and we'd get a chance to go to Japan and it just, it just never panned out, unfortunately, and I still haven't gone. I've always wanted to go. Okay, well, one day, man. Um, yeah. Uh, but while I got you here, now in in two thousand eight, um, there was the uh, I I gotta I gotta read read the titles of the EPs. Um, from, from <laughs> been. in two thousand eight, you put out the Headbangers Karaoke Club Dangerous Fire EP. <laughs> yep. Can you give me a little and and in 2010 the Invincible Gate Mind of the Infernal Fire Hell or did you mean Hawaii Daisuke EP? <laughs> yep. Can, can you give me some insight into those bizarre uh titles? Yeah, those titles are ridiculous. I I wasn't the one that did the concepts for the band. It it was John and um I think where well where that came from was I think he was looking to do something completely different from his other bands. So he didn't want it to sound, to tie in with Gridlink or DA. It wasn't a grindcore band, no blast beats allowed. It was all skank beats and double bass Slayer style. <clears throat> so the music was basically like sped up Slayer and the, the visuals and the song titles. The idea for that was it was supposed to be some kind of mysterious thrash band with a bunch of 
Japanese girls, <laughs> and they had all these ridiculous song titles, which is a, a weird concept. But I, yeah, we didn't even have our names on the album, so a lot of people didn't even know that that was me ever in those bands. Um, but yeah, we had like all these like weird fake um, uh, band member names and these like ridiculous song titles. I, I think he was just trying to do something kind of out of the box and something something very different, and that, that's that's where all that came from, which is. I can't even remember those band those album titles because they're they're so long. <laughs> well, we we'd love to speak with him one day, man. He's kind of a cult figure. He's like he's definitely cultivated his own unique following in the extreme metal scene. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he's a really I really looked up to him, you know, because I I really love Discordance Axis. I think they're one of the best grindcore bands ever, and getting getting a chance to work with him and with Matsubara and Teddy and like see see how those guys viewed extreme music and how they how they worked and where they were coming from and their influences was, was super 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 cool and I, I learned a lot a lot from them and yeah Chang Chang's really on a level of his own with the creativity and his his outlook for extreme music and all that stuff you know yeah re really cool shit man um and we're talking you know we're talking about when we talk about all those guys Talking about a lot of uh, cool bands they've been involved with, obviously. Most of the listeners should, should realize that with Gridlink and Human Remains, Discordance Axis, Burnt by the Sun, the list goes on. Uh, but yeah. that's that's definitely something people want to look into if that's new to them. Um, but is it true, then, that you took about a five-year absence from playing drums uh, between being in um, uh, Hayano uh, Daisuke and the formation of Organ Dealer? Yeah, um, at the same time that HD was going, I was also in another band, a local band called Burst Creams. That was like a hardcore punk band. There's probably not too much about them online, but I, I did do that at the same time. And I, I did that because I wanted to do um, something more local where I could play more often. I, if, if HD was going to be a more active band, I would have just done that. But I needed I needed to, to keep playing, basically. So that that's why I did that band. <clears throat> and... Um, both of those bands ended at the same time. HD actually never broke up, but it just kind of went away like a hiatus. And uh, Chang focused on those guys all focused on Gridlink a little bit more. After that, they did three albums with Gridlink, and HD did two EPs. And um, the focus kind of just shifted over to there. So I didn't really have much to do at the time. And then this was like around 2008, 2009. I'd been going pretty hard doing doing bands and touring and stuff and I, I got a little burnt out playing metal and so then I just focused on practicing different styles and yeah I had about a five six year break from playing in bands which was very very hard because it, it was a long time and it, it was very hard to get something started and find new people and and everything that would become my next band you know yeah, so would you say that during that time you were actively looking to, to start a band and it just wasn't working out, or you you consciously took time off to, to, to work on your skills? Um, at first, I took time off, and I was, I was studying drums. Like, I don't think I played anything heavy or aggressive for maybe, like, about a year. <clears throat> and um, I, did, I did that studying stuff, studying drums for about three years. And then after that, I really got the itch to play in a band again. And I wanted to play in a band and I toured with Gridlink with uh, HD and that, that was really my intro to the grindcore world. So a after that, I was very done with the, the, me the hardcore metal stuff. Cause I found something that I thought was just more, more for me. And, um, 
that made me want to really dig into grindcore and death metal and like really pursue pursue that world. So after that long break, I tried to start a grind band with a bunch of people and it just it I tried for a couple of years and I, I could never find the right people and you know, it, you know, you know how it goes. People weren't available and you know this and that and it was it was hard hard to do it and then I eventually found the guys that would be my band now, Organ Dealer. So that, yeah, that was, I, I was looking pretty actively for maybe like the last two years of, of that hiatus. Okay. And, and speaking of Organ Dealer, I know also um, from previous interviews that Jeff, James, and Trevor are all from Montclair, New Jersey, which for the listeners is North Jersey, a little bit closer to New York City, right? Yep. And you and Scott actually um, go back a little bit further uh, than Organ Dealer, right? The singer? Yeah, Scott. Scott saw my first band, The Binding. He saw us play. <clears throat> he's a couple of years younger than me, but yeah, he's uh he's from Rockaway, where the band is kind of based out of where where our rehearsal space is. So he's he's been around for a long time too, and um, so I kind I kind of knew him from the area. And then the other guys were all from Montclair. Yep. And is it true you actually had your first rehearsals at the the Meat Locker, which most people know as a venue? <laughs> yep, that is true. Um, cause those guys were from Montclair. They, they grew up going to the meat locker and I didn't really, I, I knew it was around, but I didn't really spend a lot of time there cause I was from a little bit further out West. Um, but yeah, we got together, started <clears throat> practicing at the meat locker. And then we also would practice at my, uh, my own studio that I've had for many years out, out in Rockaway. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much how that started. Um, we were kind of split, split between the two areas. Okay. Um, and when the band starts, I know the name itself, um, I forget who, who it was, but the name actually comes from somebody, uh, had a, a pretty bad accident of some sort. Right. And, and they, um, uh, they, they wanted the, they, they were toying with organ Donner and then someone came up with organ dealer. Yeah, that was uh, that was Jeff, the guitar player, <clears throat> who's still in the band, and um, he was always hurting himself. He did uh, like extreme sports, extreme skiing, and I think he messed up both his knees skiing, and he had to get surgery on his knees. And um, he was looking for a band name, and someone suggested Organ Donor, and then someone else said Organ Dealer, and De Jeff liked the name, so the name the name stuck. And he, he had that before I even came out and jammed with them. And they were like, oh, this band's going to be called Organ Dealer. So I said, okay, cool. <laughs> and with that name and with the sound and maybe some of the bands you guys have been associated with, um, people have categorized Organ Dealer as a gore grind band, but I think that might be a little inaccurate in terms of subject matter, right? Yeah, it's it's definitely changed. Um, when we When we first started the band, it was – a pretty big death metal influence. We, we were on that general surgery kind of carcass, uh, met medical, you know, grindy sort of thing. Our first album that we did, did have a lot of like medical terminology and stuff. And a lot of that came from our other original guitar player who's been out of the band for a long time. And, um, over the years, it kind of evolved into like a more, the subject matters, more personal struggles and, things like that you know so 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 the name the name stuck but uh the subject matter changed a little bit you know but i'm, I'm not i'm also not the lyricist so i'm not the best guy to ask <laughs> well no fair enough and i would just say from an outside perspective that it's been an interesting balance between grindcore with a gore grind influence 
Um, it's been it's been interesting to watch the band develop just on that tip with the kind of because the name Organ Dealer is a street is an extremely gore grind name, but then you have bands. Like I've always admired Squash Bowels, who kind of teeter back and forth between traditional grindcore with more social, social and political influenced lyrics and and actual gore grind. So it's it, it's just two sides of a, of the same you know grind coin, you know. Yeah, we we got to play with Squash Bowels finally out of Scene Extreme in Europe, and they they were they were amazing. And another another big one for us was like General Surgery from Sweden and yeah. Carcass, like I mentioned before. Um, but yeah, it, it was kind of a hybrid at first because when we started the band, uh, the two guitar players want, had death metal riffs. They want they wanted to do like a Cannibal Corpse obituary, <clears throat> and like they were the only guys that I could find that could really play fast at the time. And I, I was very much coming from like thrash, grindcore, like that that kind of world I was in before, and I was really influenced by that stuff. And so I just wanted to take take that and make it extreme and just just have fast drums over it all the time and over time it, it evolved more into into grindcore and uh different different influences from grindcore and and like i said the, the lyrical content and the the visuals and stuff evolved from a little bit of the the gore grind stuff we were we were never like a gory grind band really but um yeah it became more introspective personal stuff about suffering and life and all that stuff all right. So, and like you said, you're not the lyricist. So let's let's talk drums, man. Um, when you, I don't know if you want to get into what sort of a kit um you've been using all all these years, but what 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 I what maybe a good starting point when you take that hiatus from drums. Um, first of all, maybe if you want to get into, get into technically, were there were there any techniques you studied, any uh, genres of music and percussion that you studied? And when you decide to get back in the game, what sort of equipment are you investing in? Yeah, um, during during that break, I took lessons from a guy named Joe Bergamini, who's a who's a great teacher, and um, he's not from the underground metal world at all. He's a he's a Broadway drummer on New York. Huh. Um, and like I said at the time, I was I was burnt out, so I was looking for something different, and I wanted to get better. And so I figured it would be good to go to someone that had a little bit, actually, very different influences than me. And so with, with him, I studied a little bit of everything. I studied jazz and Latin and like R&B and funk and drum, drum and bass and techniques and just, just trying to become an overall better drummer. And I, I did that. And that, that really helped me a lot. Um, and then towards the end of that, like I said, when I, when I kind of got the itch to play in the band again, I wanted to get better at metal. And uh, during that break, I saw a little band that I'm sure you know, Malignancy, uh, for the first time, <laughs> yeah, and and their drummer Mike Heller blew me away. So I and he's up in New York. So I uh, I hit him up and I took lessons from him and we worked on the opposite of everything I did with Joe and that was all metal technique, blasting double bass, how to play fast, relaxed, um, all that stuff. And so the the two of those guys, I really owe them a lot and I, I really learned a lot from them. And um, I actually stopped. Uh, taking lessons from Mike because Mike joined Fear Factory, which ties everything in because Fear Factory was like literally the first metal band I ever saw, which is really, really funny. Huh. So uh, I think he's still in Fear Factory. Um, and in terms of gear, both of those guys are Tama guys and I'm a Tama guy. So I've, I've always played Tama drums um, up until recently, until August, I just bought a Pearl kit, but uh, I still have the Tama kit and I, I go back and forth with it. So that those guys really um, kind of like 
shaped me like uh, kind of in the more more modern times, you know, for for the stuff that I'm doing now. Interesting. All right, Mike Heller, malignancy. Um, yeah, and, and the, the Fear Factory thing. There's a lot there. Um, so malignancy, really technical band, really interesting drum work. Uh, now going back as for me as a layman, someone who's who's you know I've I can keep a four four beat on drums, but I can't play with you guys. With malignancy, having started out, um, literally playing and taking lessons from uh, uh, Dillinger Escape Plan's original drummer. What are the similarities and differences there, technically speaking, between learning malignancy style and learning Dillinger Escape Plan style? They, they both uh, were extremely technical drummers, you know, from, uh, from a different time. And it suited me well because I, I always leaned towards, like, I, I don't know why, but just the most aggressive, like, crazy stuff I could find. And, and those were two of the most, like, crazy, aggressive, you know, metal t- kind of guys that I could find. But I, I know uh, through Mike and through Chris that they do have – common influences and I, I would say like their common influences would probably be like uh progressive metal you know death cynic stuff like that um some jazz stuff you know and then uh class you know classic stuff pantera metallica all, all all that stuff i think they share a common thread with that and um they're both school drummers too so i, I think they would have a lot in common actually you know yeah, it's well. It's just when you mention those two bands, I never really boxed them in together. But you know, it makes perfect sense, really, especially from like a more rhythmic standpoint. Yeah, and I, I know you know Mike. Mike's not the original uh, drummer of Malignancy, but I, I know when when he joined the band, they kind of went through the roof and and got super 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 technical. <clears throat> and it's it's also funny with both of those guys and with you. You know, over the years, it's like we all keep crossing paths. Like after I took lessons from uh mike and mike went off with fear factory you know malignancy got a new drummer alex and then organ dealer played a million shows with malignancy and i, I just saw those guys like two months ago so it's it's cool how it all ties in and it's, it's a small world you know yeah it's definitely a small scene man it gets it gets smaller and smaller the more you do too so um yeah. and build your network and um you mentioned uh was it obscene extreme before yeah. Yep. Yeah. Speaking of how small the scene is and, and building your network and everything, um, you touched on that. Uh, did you guys do a fair amount of international touring or was that just kind of like a one off trip? Um, a little bit of both. So Organ Dealer was the first band that got me out of the country. And that that's really my favorite thing now, I think. Um First international show we played was we played in Montreal uh, in 2016, I think. And we, we played a festival called the Ear Slaughter Fest, which is an awesome, awesome grindcore fest they have up there. We've played it two times. And it's kind of the, the North American version of Obscene Extreme, actually. And that was super awesome. And then we had an opportunity to tour Europe in 2017. We did a full European tour in 2017. And then in 2018, we finally came back and did Obscene Extreme, and um, that was kind of a one-off. We did uh, we did three shows in Europe for that one, but they were all they were all at the festival. So part of the deal was us traveling all the way there. Was they would they would put us on the the opening show and then the main show and then the, the after party show. And those those were some of my favorite things I've ever done. Those were incredible shows. 
Yeah, I mean, I've obviously I've never been, but I've seen um, videos, and that looks just like some huge Mardi Gras underground grindcore. It's it's crazy, man. It, I mean, yeah, the, the the closest thing in the U.S. is MDF, and I went to MDF for many years too, and we we played it as well. Um, but in Europe, it's just it's just another it's another level, man. It's like people people are so receptive to extreme music there, and there's a scene for it. There's a crowd for it. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a bigger opportunity for it out there. And I'm seeing extreme is such a, a legendary legacy festival. And the one that we played also was their 20th anniversary. So that, that was an extra special, super awesome one. And a bunch of, a bunch of our friends played it too. So it, it was, that was an unbelievable week, probably like one of the best weeks ever, you know? Yeah, I can imagine, man. What's, what's a takeaway um, just from, from playing that festival and maybe from a little bit of international touring, um, something that like, you know, like maybe, maybe something you miss from this, from playing shows stateside that you don't get over there and maybe why, why playing over there is a little bit more welcoming sometimes than the United States. I think, I think most bands and, uh, most U S bands will probably underground bands will probably tell you they, they treat the bands a little bit better in Europe than they do in the U S and that's no disrespect to the U S but, um, they just have it down better over there. So what I mean by that is, like I said, like there's more receptive, people are more receptive to it. There's a lot more like fans for underground music. And if you go over there and you're, you're a small band like us that they treat you like you're an equal with like, you know, the biggest bands over there, you roll up to a show and there's a pile of food there's tons of drinks like the promoters are always super cool they give you a place to stay and you know as you know from touring in the u.s you know they don't really provide that like you get good gigs but you got to go to the, the mcdonald's and the walmart at three o'clock in the morning and then you got to drive eight hours overnight to the next show you know and they they take care of you better there and i think that really um blows away a lot of people from from like you know the U.S. and North America who go over there, you know? Yeah, in the U.S., you're lucky if you get a six-pack of beer and they only take 10% of your merch sales, not 20%. So. <laughs> yeah, and they, they definitely don't give you, a, you know, you can find a place to stay, but you got to, like, you know, beg beg someone for it, you know? But yeah. you go over there and they'll have rooms for you with, like, beds and hostels and all that stuff, you know? So it's – and, and, and it's, more, it's more exciting experience, you know, too, being in another country in a different culture – you know, seeing how the underground scene works over there. I, I absolutely love love that stuff, and I can't wait to do it again one day. Yeah, man, I, I'm I'm sure, man. And shout, shout out to all of our great American venues, man. You guys know I'm busting balls. I'm joking around. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, we got Vitus, you know? Yeah, of course. There's a, there's a few bad ones out there on the road, but there's always the, the great ones like Vitus and uh, um, uh, they, uh, what, the, the Meat Locker, like we were just talking about before. <laughs> yep. Course. You know, and so on and so forth. Um, but now with Organ Dealer, um, I know you guys have kept busy. During, well, hold on. Here's another thing. During the pandemic, could would you mind talking a little bit about, didn't you and Jeff, you and Jeff were roommates and you guys experienced a, a fire, right? Yep. Yeah. So um, a little bit over a year ago, we were living together and um, we were living in a house and we had some neighbors downstairs and there was an unfortunate accident, uh, a barbecuing accident um, on a grill in uh, our neighbor's doorway. Oh my and God. It, uh, it, it lit our whole house up and our house burned down and everything we had burned to the ground. And I don't recommend that happening to anyone. <laughs> barbecuing in the doorway. 
Yeah, yeah. He um the the neighbor was two two stories down from us, and he it, it was a house converted to apartments, and he had a he had a studio apartment in the back, and he had one doorway, and it was like the doorway was like a deck, and there was a barbecue grill on the deck, and above him was kind of like a. Uh, an out an outcropping of like the the level above him so it, he was it was on a deck and it was all surrounded by wood and um he was barbecuing with a friend and i think he fell asleep and um one of the legs of the grill gave out and lit the whole house up on fire that was fun oh my god all right well i'm glad you guys uh are, are still still alive to tell the tale that, that's crazy yeah. man um, yeah uh yep. Uh, so were you guys home at the time or yeah i was in my bedroom and i i saw we saw the whole thing happen i i you know we saw everyone run out of it <laughs> jeez all right yeah well it was, it was it was a crazy crazy event did you lose instruments and drums uh i was luckily i didn't really i had um a couple pa- practice pads and i had my pedal um but everything else was at our studio so that was the one thing I was lucky enough not to not to really lose was um, my gear, you know. So I, I yeah. I'm very lucky we didn't we didn't lose that. And I think um, I think Jeff might have had one guitar in there, but he he was able to grab it. And I think most of his stuff was was his equipment was safe too. But all our all our personal stuff got destroyed. Sorry to hear that, man. But um, uh, well, but, but but moving forward, I do know that you guys since then have been able to actually record the forthcoming organ dealer album your second album right yep we did and it's going to be released i don't know if you have a time frame other than this year but it's going to be released on everlasting spew records yep yeah we um we were writing it around the same time that our house burned down we had it about halfway two-thirds of the way done and then during through through all that mess we just we just kept getting together and writing and um, finished writing it, um, you know, arranged all the parts. And then we went down to Baltimore to a studio called Developing Nations. We recorded there in September and uh, signed the deal with Everlasting Spew, who are a great death metal label from Italy. And, um, yeah, it's going to come out this year. Um, I don't know exactly when. We're kind of like finalizing um, the mixing and mastering for it right now. Okay, and um, you know, I'll pry a little bit. Is there anything you can tell us um, concerning the album? Anything stylistically or thematically um, that you know, without giving away the secrets? Yeah, um, this is our longest album. It's got twenty-one tracks. I think our other full length had maybe twelve. So this one is a lot, a lot bigger. But it's. Uh, it's 21 songs in 23 minutes, so I think it's the most full-on grindcore album we've ever done, and uh, that's that's exactly what we set out to do. So I'm I'm very happy with um, the songs and, and how how it came out. Um, so I'm exci- I'm just excited for everyone to hear it. Finally, we've been we've been working on it basically since we came back from Obscene Extreme in 2018, and it's just been. Lots of delays, unfortunately, you know, delays with the COVID situation and everything too. But um, it's getting there. It's it's going to come out. I'm very excited for it. Awesome. And um, speaking of uh, you know the COVID delays and all that, have you guys uh, been able to get back to playing live or um, uh, still still trying to uh, plan it out? Unfortunately, um, we have not. Um, 
our guitar player Jeff had to get uh, shoulder surgery after we recorded. So we got in just in time to record and he had to go through the surgery and uh, he's recovering from that. And um, I think he's pretty much healed up now. So hopefully very, very, very soon we'll finally get together and we'll finally be able to start doing some gigs in the future. It's It's been a very, very long wait. You know, this has been the longest uh, break I've done since I had that five, six year hiatus in like 2000, 2008, 2009. So I'm, I'm very, very anxious to get back and play. Yeah. Like a lot of people, man, like a soul. And I got to ask Jeff, did he, did he hurt his shoulder doing extreme sports or something? I'm not really sure. I think he did it. When I asked him, he said he wasn't sure, but I think, I think it might've been a work related injury this time. Okay. But uh, yeah, he he doesn't have good luck with the injuries. <laughs> um, he might he might really just be a superhero at night, man. We won't. Pry. Yeah, I, I hope he's got a Terminator arm now and he can just <laughs> shred at three hundred miles an hour. Yeah, all right. So so we won't pry, man. But um, we wish we wish him the best. Um, take care of that shoulder, tough guy. And um, <laughs> uh, you, you need both arms to play guitar. And um, so all right, so. Now, looking back at my notes, man, I think we, you know, we've we've about covered the uh, the history. We've taken you there. We're to- we've spoken about the new album. I don't want you to uh, spill the beans. You guys have done a number of splits, uh, most recently with Nerve Grind and Invertebrate in uh, 2018, and with Bird Flesh in 2017. Uh, we mentioned that you appeared on the uh, was the Wheel Must podcast. That's um the the fellow from Bird Flesh. Yep. Mm-hmm. You guys have a pre. Uh, you guys played over in Europe with them. I, I take it you have a relationship. Uh, we actually, we, we did. Yeah. We finally did at obscene extreme, but, um, we started playing with them in the U S cause they were, they were coming to the U S a lot. And, um, we first That's played right. with them at a, um, I think it was a, I think it was a festival called the Philadelphia Infest. I think it was yeah. a festival that our friend gutter did, you know, gutter. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah, he, he booked us with them and, we just became friendly with them and started talking to them. And same thing as like all the other stories of uh, crossing paths. We kept crossing paths. We played in Canada with them. I think the, the first time we played the Ear Slaughter Fest that I mentioned before and um, got along with them real well. And they asked us to do a split with them. And, you know, they're, they're a legendary band. We, we immediately said yes and um, stayed in touch. And uh, that's, that's how we got to do the split with them. And we got to do the podcast with those guys and everything. And th- those guys are, are great, great guys. Okay. Yeah. And what, uh, one more thing that we didn't um, speak about. You did have a, an appearance. Uh, we, you know, we talked about, um, I'm going to say it wrong again. Forgive me. Uh, Hyeno Daisuke, um, uh, guitarist Takafumi Matsubara released his solo album uh, just a year or two ago, and you did have an appearance on that. Yeah. Oh, this was another one I forgot about. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, he's he's been like a kind of a collaborator, you know, a friend of mine for a long time, going back to 2004, 2005. And um, uh, he, he had to go through some physical recoveries and stuff in Japan, too. And he... Um, he healed up and he, he did this solo album that was a kind of a collaboration concept where um, he was getting drummers and, and lineups from, from bands from all over the world for um, each song on the album. And luckily enough, he asked me to do one of the songs and anything he ever asked me to do, I'll always say yes. So I, I said yes to that right away. And um, our friend from another grindcore band in New York, Japan, uh, Mr. Gore, did vocals for it. And that one, that one came out great. I got to do uh, just just one track on that album, but yeah, I'm really happy I got to do that. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's just funny coincidence. We recently had uh, Mitchell Luna, um, vocalist of um, uh, Maruda. Yeah, Maruda and his new band, The Shock Withdrawal. He was he was featured on that album on one song as well. Yeah, Mitch is a friend of ours. Shout out to Mitch. Yeah, yeah, covering all the bases, man. Trying to trying to um get everybody in uh, th- as quick as we can, man. We can only do so many episodes, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, we I asked him about that too, man. So all right, cool, man. Glad we could cover that. And um, that being said, now I'll give you obviously the opportunity to, to plug and promote anything I might have failed to bring up, and we're and um uh, obviously people can look out for that new Organ Dealer album coming out on Everlasting Spew Records this year at some point. Um, but like we always do when we wind down, Eric, I want to ask you to recommend one older and one newer album by any artist that you like metal or otherwise. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a great question. Um, do you want something kind of underground or something well, well known or doesn't matter. People recommend jazz. They recommend classic rock. I'm just any, anything, um, you know, Take the wheel and uh, recommend just something a little from back in the day and something that from the last few years or or this year uh, could be anything underground, big, whatever. And just talk about why you like it for a minute, why we should uh, keep our eyes peeled for it. Um, Well, uh, like a a big one from back in the day. I'm sure a lot of people know this, but um, since since we've been kind of talking about it and a big, big influence that was a game changer was. Discordance Axis, their their last album, Inalienable Dreamless. That that was really the album that kind of got me into grindcore, like even before Napalm Death and, and all that stuff. So I got to give a shout out for for that one. Um, that one's really good. Um, re- more recent stuff. Um, I had a feeling you were going to ask me, so I was trying to, to dig in and check out check out some recent stuff that I've been digging. Um, there's an album by a band called uh, Triage that came out maybe a year or two ago, and that's uh, that's Brian who played drums for Kill for uh, Gridlink, and it's kind of a new uh, lineup of his old band Kill the Client. I think it's a couple of those guys, and that huh. album came out, and not many people were talking about it, but it, it's great, you know, full on grindcore. That album's really good. Um, there's a there's a split that I was just checking out. Um, between two bands, one's called Nakai and one's called Hate for Humanity. Uh, Hate for Humanity is Jeff, the guitar player who was in Nerve Grind that we did a split with. So that's like his new project. So I've been, I've been digging that. <clears throat> and um, I'll give a shout out to a couple couple local bands too. Uh, Lunar Blood, who are, who are a young local band from Jersey. And uh, Unhinged, who are, they're both doing kind of like death metal grindcore, some newer bands. And they're be on the lookout for them. They're pretty cool. Unhinged. Okay, man. Cool. Uh, yeah, always some cool stuff coming out of Jersey. Like we were talking about it before, man. You know, even to this day, there's a lot of cool stuff coming out of Jersey, man. Hell yeah. Um, all right. So Eric Schnee, man, of Organ Dealer and of all the other projects we discussed, man, we encourage everybody to go out and check out all the music we talked about. And uh, like we said, keep your ears and your eyes peeled for that new Organ Dealer record on Everlasting Spew Records. Uh, Eric, any um, anything I failed to bring up or any final uh, words for the listeners of the show and fans of your music? Yeah, there, there actually was uh, one other release that I, I just did in 2019. It was another project with uh, Matsubara. This one kind of fell below the radar, but um, he had a, a band in Japan called Torsion Terror, and he, he came and did a, like a U.S. tour with them and played with a bunch of different lineups, and I, I got to record with him yet again um, with a split with uh, two, two really awesome bands. One band's called Blightworms. They're from Australia. And another band's called Gendo Akari. They're like a power violence grindcore band from Scotland. So 
check out that and those two bands. That's uh, that's kind of a more underground release, but that one that's a really good one too. Uh, Gerald, uh, Gerald Chow from uh, Gendo Akiri. Gendo, Akari. I, I can't say the yeah. names. Yeah, uh, yeah, he knows I love him. He's a, a longtime supporter, man. Yeah, shout to him. Oh, um, shout out to Gendo. Yeah, yeah, Gen- Gendo. Is it Gendo Akiri? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. All right, man. You you guys know you got to give me a pass for some of the Okay, that was our interview with Eric Schnee, drummer extraordinaire, uh, not only of Organ Dealer, but as we explained thoroughly of other projects um, throughout the years, man. Uh, good to talk to that guy and catch up with him a little bit. Shout out to all the guys in Organ Dealer. Looking forward to anything new that they always do. Great band. Great, great band. Great band to see live. Uh, yeah. Singer's always doing something a little wild. I worry about the guy. I don't I caught them uh, Lucky 13 after like a Summer Slam, I think. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That was fun. Yeah, we got to, got to see some wrestling and then uh, caught their set just as they started. Yeah, their set is like wrestling adjacent, very much so, man. Definitely. The singer, he's he's kind of like a like a skinny guy. He can get up there on the speaker and jump around. As a, sk- a skinny guy who's not as agile as him, a little yeah. jealous, you know. I'm, I, I'm, I'm clumsy, I, but he does it good. If I tried to jump up on a PA or swing from a PA, it would be like kind of like a polar bear knocking over a log. <laughs> and it's like slowly knocking over over a log in the wild or right. something. Like one of those footages from campsites where they're just going through your cooler. Uh, yeah. like, God damn it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like a like a polar bear like it's it's butt bumping into a row of motorcycles that fall like dominoes. I don't I don't think it would be unwarranted. It would be comedic, but that's not with death metal we can't be too funny, man. No. I'm not you know, I'm not macabre. I can't I you know, I don't have the the timing they do. I don't have the comedic timing. But um, that it, it's all good, man. Because you guys had the timing to tune into the Heavy Hole podcast today. We appreciate it, uh, just like we appreciate Eric Schnee. And one thing I want to get out of the way before we plug our Patreon, which I've been trying to catch up with uh, and give you guys the content you deserve, and our social media and everything like that. I had a recommendo, something that struck me, Tom, and I feel like it works a little bit because this is like a grindcore adjacent podcast. Eric's from Jersey. It was a little bit of Long Island talk. We've been sticking heavy, so I had to like like sneak attack you with a Long Island cut this week. But it's not death metal. Okay. It's um. I talked about this. We had a long time ago. I did a whole grindcore episode where I like allegedly uh, pop. What are those things? The things people use to uh, they, they study on them a lot, and you know they, they the, the pills that the kids pop. Allegedly, oh Adderall. Yeah, I allegedly, yeah, yeah. I really wasn't on Adderall, but like it's like if you listen back to the episode, the grindcore episode, where I just listed every grindcore subgenre in the world and li- and like talked about them for an hour and a half while you and Justin shook your heads. 
I mean, uh, every now and then. Yeah, there was. <laughs> it's, it's intense. It's a lot yeah, of coverage, man. There, there was a few like sparks, you know. Like I remember, there was like one brief second where I talked about this album, Millhouse's uh, "Obscenity in the Milk" from 1997 on Wreck Age Records, which is kind of like a cult hardcore and. Uh, you know, whatever you want to call this stuff. The word screamo has been bastardized. You can't really use that. It's like, I'm talking about maybe bands such as like Rorschach, Early Snapcase, Page 99, maybe Orchid fits in there. You know, it's kind of like this screamy, screechy subgenre of hardcore before like, like now when you say screamo, people think of like My Chemical Romance. Yeah, I never, I never liked that term. Yeah. Ever. Like it never rang. And also I think, I was going to school, high school and stuff at a time where I was getting into more metalcore stuff, death metal, stuff like that. And that's what everyone, when they wanted to make a cheap joke, they used the term screamo. Yeah. And it was like, what, what do you like, mean? When I was in high school, Converge was like the, like screamo. Yeah. It was like screechy kind of emotional hardcore that wasn't about being tough and your crew. Yeah. It was like it was like it was like like like, like there Jane was, Doe was huge at that time. Like, yeah, well, that's what I mean. And yeah. people would call that screamo, and then screamo over the two thousands turned into this like hot topic type of term. But yeah. we're getting off topic. We're, we're getting off the hot topic, which is Millhouse's "Obscenity in the Milk." This was a local Long Island band in the early to mid nineties, uh, whose career culminated in this um, "Obscenity in the Milk" uh, second album that they had. They had the first one, "Modern Problems." Uh, classic solutions and old-fashioned mistakes. I think that was it. That was the first album that was really good too. But this album, they really stepped it up a notch. Uh, production. Tom, you just mentioned the bass had a really powerful, clangy punch yeah, on this album. Uh, a lot, a lot of tempo changes. They they brought a, uh, one or two of the older songs back, and they really sped it up. This album is just they raced the, uh, through a lot of these songs, giving it the impression of almost a power violence or grindcore album. Which on the East Coast and in Long Island and in New York City in the early '90s, music like this, in my opinion, I think was a parallel to like the Slapaham Records power violence scene. Um, and maybe what bands like Capitalist Casualties were doing in other places. This was kind of the New York version of that, in my opinion. And you had later on, like, Black Army Jacket uh, was was notable. Um, doing something, they were all, not that they all sounded like Millhouse or Millhouse sounded like them, but there was a lot of bands kind of in this, you know, wheelhouse. Uh, not, not to use a pun off Millhouse, but... Um, uh, so I just wanted to recommend this real quick. It's it's kind of like an underrated album. I don't know that Millhouse has really had any big reissues or um, even reunion shows or anything like that. It would be fun to try to track down the singer Artie Philly and talk to him. He's had a few bands over the years. Uh, but this is kind of an underrated band. And I feel like in this day and age where people are going back and... Converge, obviously, is huge and never really lost popularity, but I think some people are going back to the early 90s and revisiting bands like Page 99 and Rorschach, Orchid, like I said, and there's you know there's a lot more that I'm not even up on. Uh, so this, this deserves a shake, too, man. Go back and check out Millhouse, and keep in mind that they have another EP before this, um, the Old Fashioned uh, Problems... Uh, or whatever it was called, you'll you'll know when you see it. Um, problems, solutions, mistakes. Uh, that one is a little bit more slower and hardcore than this more grindcore album. So Millhouse Obscenity in the Milk. Just a quick recommendo for everybody out there. That's not as we're doing an episode that's not as much on the death metal tip. It's a little more grindcore. So I figured I'd throw this in. It's a good pick. Yeah, check it out, man. Long Island in the house. Lindenhurst, I think.
Thanks very much to drummer extraordinaire Eric Schnee of Organ Dealer and all his other projects for keeping it real with us. A nice trip down memory lane, talking about his old band, The Binding, and a little bio-lich talk for everybody. Uh, we used to play shows together every now and again. And um, I hope you check out that Millhouse album. Man. I hope you check out our Patreon. I've been trying to catch up with the bonus episodes. Uh, that was my little New Year's resolution. I'm giving you guys what you want. Uh, we're, we're trying, we've got outtakes from certain interviews that we do. Uh, you can go back and check that out, too, man. Little things that you might not hear on the main feed. Um, and bonus episodes and things going back now two years, too, for people if you're kind of new to the Patreon game. So check us out on... What's what's the address on Patreon? Uh, I, I think it's just Heavy Hole Podcast. Uh, yeah, Patreon.com slash Heavy Hole Podcast. Everything Google is it, man. Like searchable it's... nowadays, man. Why we got to do that, man? So is the phone number. Tom, I'm going to do something tonight. You don't have to say that number. My voice is... Yeah, save no, that I'm pretty sorry. little voice of yours, man. Save that so you can say important things to your family members. Uh, Google the, fo- the phone number. Leave us a voicemail. Uh, heavyholepodcast.com. We're on Facebook. We're on IG and Twitter and all that, man. Message us. Shoot us a little message. Maybe we'll read it. Maybe we'll, we'll, we'll talk about something that you want to recommend or something, man. Who knows? Maybe we'll interview you if you got something going on, man. Allegedly. We, got some, we have some uh, recommendations in the mail we have to go over. Yeah. Um, you know what, man? So we owe some. Uh, Panic Chords talking to you. I know you sent some stuff. We're going to cover that soon. Yeah. You know, but, I, you know, it's like this, there's so many hours in the day, man. I can only devote so much to, uh, to these recommendations and contacts, man. I apologize to everybody we're working on it man but one day you're gonna be the one yeah, yeah, yeah.